Hello and welcome to The Work of Art, a series of conversations that challenge the accepted idea of how and why artists build a career. In the UK, the median income for, that an artist makes from their work is less than £10,000 each year, yet thousands manage to live and work in Europe's most expensive city while sustaining a career and often raising a family too. But no two artists are the same. Their ideas of success differ widely, with art being made for public or commercial galleries, in communities, on commission, via residences and in a myriad of other ways. What helps and hinders them is often highly personal, coloured by circumstance and motivation, but what joins them is an ongoing critical dialogue with their peers and audiences. Throughout this series, I'll be talking to six artists about the decisions they make to balance the competing t demands on their time and try to find out what artists really do all day. My name is Russell Martin and I'm an artist as well as the programme manager for ArtQuest. Today I'm talking with Mayanna Holm-Hansen. Hello Mayanna. Hello. Uh, thank you very much for having me in your studio here in, uh, is this Shoreditch would you call this or is this Hoxton? Hoxton. Okay. Yes. Maybe we could start with you telling us a little bit about your work, the kind of things you're interested in, the sort of media you use, the, the basics. Um, I work across media and my work is really about experience. It's a very broad term, but it's about how we come to understand the world the way we do. And if we know that, uh, does that give us the possibility for changing our understanding or our experiences? So it's really about perception. So when you say it's about perception and experience, is it also about behaviour as well? Are you looking to kind of influence people's behaviour? It is. It's very much about behaviour uh, and language. And those two very much go together for me, or especially at the moment, because I'm looking at things where language is not quite enough to describe particular situations. So language is already quite imprecise, I find. So in kind of like pinning down very precise meanings, I'm, I'm kind of looking into how behaviour fits into that, and in particular kind of gestures, repeated movement, how we move through particular sites. Mm -hmm. So it's more about, I think, me kind of observing or testing out how that might work in particular situation, then it is me wanting to kind of influence people's behaviour. So the kind of work that you make, it sounds like it's quite process-based. Is it particularly kind of exhibitable, media-driven? Like, do you make artefacts that go in galleries, or is it more performance-based, or what? what? It's, it's process-based in the way that my practice is really about finding out things. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of figuring out how things work and how they work in that particular way. So very often it's a process that involves kind of testing things out materially within the studio, having conversations with other people. And that means that sometimes it results in work or objects or material things mm -hmm. that can go into gallery spaces. But often it's just a conversation, mm -hmm. something very ephemeral, like a note. Mm -hmm. A recording. Mm -hmm. A recording, yes. <laughs> a I, recording. Know, I know about that, yes. Yeah, you know about that. Um, so, so it kind of really varies. I very rarely make work to make work, if that makes sense. I don't kind of set out to make a series of photographs or series of text-based work. They kind of come out of a process of finding out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes... They become works because other people, they d decide their work, or they invite me to show them or suggest that I should put them somewhere, which means that suddenly what I've seen as quite ephemeral changes their status, if that's it, or their, well, I guess it's status, I'm not sure that's the best word, but 
they change from being kind of like research material or output or notes to becoming something else. So that's, that's really interesting, actually, that kind of mechanism that you're describing. So it's almost like there's a body of things or stuff that, yeah. that go on, and some of them you decide to turn into some object that can be exhibited, and sometimes someone, is this what you're saying? Maybe this isn't what you're saying. And sometimes you'll be maybe having a, a, a conversation with a curator or someone who say, suggests to you that this could be a work. Is that, yeah. is that the kind of process? Okay, right. It is. So, so an example is I've been kind of... Because I'm interested in language and what things mean and why they mean what they mean and how we can use language to kind of communicate very precisely. And I did that, and I've done that for a long time, by using the typewriter and just kind of repeating words and then by kind of mistyping them, other meanings would emerge. So it's been a way of trying to pin down language. And those were really almost like little exercises. And it started off by me working with a group of writers on the process of writing. And that material got included in a small publication, and then other people saw it, and somebody was in the studio doing a text-based exhibition and said we're going to include these and I said I guess that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so your studio is kind of a meeting point for, all, for, yeah. for people, it's about people yeah. coming to the studio, that's obviously yeah. quite important. What, what I'm enjoying and what's very important to me is really to have conversations with people mm-hmm. about things and what they mean and uh, how you deal with stuff and the studio is a good space to kind of meet up and have those kind of conversations. Mm-hmm. So I do it, I invite people to come around, and a few times I've hosted other people who needed a space to be, so who's done things, and that's been great for me, because they come here, I'm here, and they do the things, and I can kind of be a participant or an onlooker, so I get to experience that too. It also must be quite good in terms of meeting other people as well. If someone comes in and brings their work in, then they're obviously bringing their friends and their bits of their network in too, so you yeah. can kind of expand the number of people that you know too. Yeah. It is. How long have you had this studio? For more than 10 years. More than 10 years, okay. Been here for a long time. Uh-huh. And it's a space it's studio? It's a space studio. So yeah. is it, um, does space own the site or is it a... No, they, it's a long lease from Hackney Council. Okay. And is that kind of secure or not really sure? It was extended some years ago, so it is secure for the next little while. But it's problematic because the rent is increasing really dramatically. Right. 10% a year. Really? A year? Yes. You can't help every April. You just kind of wonder how long is this going to last. Yeah. So how do you afford it? I mean, given that you have this quite reasonably ephemeral practice with yeah. works that may or may not happen and conversation-based and all the rest of it, how do, you, how, do you, how do you afford it? Well, I do sell some of the ephemeral works. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. The works that become works. But I make my money through education practice. So I work in museum galleries with various institutions, universities, and I deliver, facilitate projects, participatory events, workshops, Mm -hmm. and that pays. Not necessarily brilliantly, but it's enough. Mm -hmm. And is that also part of your practice? It, it, It really overlaps. And I think in uh, many cases, when it works really well, it is, because it goes back to the same idea about 
wanting to know how understanding is made. And for me, I think it's really important to be connected to a wide range of people and it gives me that opportunity because the people I work with, and especially when I work within museum and galleries, are people for all uh, kinds of backgrounds, professions, the very young people, the very old people. Mm-hmm. So it's people with different experiences and different views on lives and different reasoning for thinking the way that they think. So it's think part of the research, really, that builds into your practice, and it's, it sounds like it's important that that's not, that doesn't just come from people in the art world, other artists or other people in the art world. But it, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, it's very important. So what do you think that adds to your practice? I think it adds in terms of, I know, I, know, I know I'm becoming very repetitive now, but if you want to, to know, and I think that's what's kind of driven my practice and the reason why I ended up being an artist, is that I've always been really curious, but more than being curious, I've been wanting to know why things are this way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's something I remember from being very young, is kind of I wanted to know. I couldn't just kind of say that's how it is. And, and that uh, experience that we all have, that you will be with someone and you're doing the same thing and you leave with two very different understandings of what that is. And I've just always been kind of wanting to know why is that and what is it in your experience or your background or your way of looking or who you're reading or the film that you're watching or the places that you inhabit. What is it that makes that different and then how does it become possible to kind of communicate things clearly if we come from different points. Mm-hmm. And in terms of meeting other people or people who are not uh, operating in the same field or discipline as me is that they bring different material to that process. Mm-hmm. And it's also exciting because that gives you a new way of looking at it and you get introduced to terms and I think as an artist you're allowed to or me as an artist, I feel like I'm allowed to misunderstand things, which is great. Mm. So I'll be fed terms and ideas that I don't quite understand, but because I misunderstand them, they become interesting or they give rise to other questions or other ways of working. Or Suddenly the world is different because you have misread a sign or somebody has told you mm-hmm. a term that you don't know what is, but it's, you know, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> It's a really nice way of looking at it, actually. It is, isn't it? And I think you're right. Artists do have that kind of permission to misunderstand things. When when you were talking about that kind of curiosity that you had about why people understand things in different ways, and that that was a driver and a motivator for you to become an artist, can you talk a little bit more about that? About what was what was the kind of trigger, or what were your expectations about becoming an artist? There was never a very definite decision, I'm going to be an artist. I never had that thought. I like to draw. I went to art school for a very little time. I left quite quickly. Why uh, was When that? I was still in Denmark. I think all I wanted was to draw. I quite liked to draw. And suddenly I was in this environment where people wanted to do very specific things and there were talks about kind of I'm burning to create and I must do this and there was, there was talks that I couldn't identify with at all and also it was in Denmark and at the time at least I don't know if this is still the case it was kind of the um, old academy system where you do classical drawing which I liked but there was very little guidance on what you then do 
What, what, in, in terms of what? In terms of kind of particular, the, the way it works here, you do a foundation or a BA, there'll be a particular introduction to certain media or particular ways of working or there'll be seminars and critiques and that didn't take place. So basically for five years you were given a studio space and occasional contact with professors in Denmark, which is great. If I was doing it now, I would love it. Because now I know what I'm doing. <laughs> what you're doing yeah. But at the time I didn't know what I was doing, so mm. I left. And I also realized that I wanted to do photography and that wasn't possible within the school oh, uh, really? where That's I studied. Yeah. So I went off to study photography. I continued, uh, went to New York to study and I wanted to be first a documentary photographer. Because in the same way as being an artist, being a photographer gives you permission to enter worlds that you wouldn't otherwise be able to enter. But I had a hard time kind of figuring out how I would enter people's worlds, take something from them, even if the result could be positive for them, and then leave and never have contact with them. So I thought that was problematic. So it, it, it was kind of progressively, I just ended up doing my own work. But even back then, it sounds when you were talking about being a documentary photographer, yeah. it sounds like it was an interest in people and interest in other people and, yeah. and a kind of ethical interest in them that you can't just dip in and out. Yeah. It's not like newspaper reportage. It's it's a, a ongoing contact with these people yeah. that was important to you. Yeah, and that's difficult to maintain. In the same way, it, a lot of the work I do, one of the difficulties of the work that I do is that it's, it's very short term the work I do when I work with others. I'm sometimes fortunately and do long-term projects with a particular group of people or as, you know, in a particular situation, place, institution. But very often I do very short workshops, mm-hmm. you know. In terms of the education In workshops? terms of the e- yeah. education work that I do. So I think that one of the things I try to do when I have the opportunity to set up my own projects is that I try to kind of establish longer-term contacts with people. That sounds like it's probably a structure of the gallery education yeah. system. Yeah. It sounds like it's quite dissatisfying as well. It can be. And it is because you meet people and you set up kind of a relationship in that very short period of time. But you, you can't kind of think about what has happened and what has been said and going back with a kind of reconsidered question or answer. So you can't continue that conversation. And you don't really get the time in many instances to really get your teeth into a particular subject either. What do you think the motivation is, and this is guesswork, what do you think the motivation is for galleries and museums and institutions to do gallery education work? Well, it is to engage their audiences, I think is the official line. Mm -hmm. It is also to bring in new audiences. And I think in certain cases it's about numbers and getting people through the door to get funding. That's not a very positive thing. But the flip side of it is that it brings people in and in contact with art. Mm -hmm. And do you think it does that, gallery gallery education in general? I'm not talking specifically about your practice or the institution you work in, but in general, I used to work in gallery education as well, and it was never hugely talked about as a big part of the programme in the institutions yeah. that I worked in. It was always there and it was important. Often it was important financially. Yeah. Uh, often the gallery education, the fundraising that the gallery education department would do would also support exhibitions. Yeah. But it wasn't given the same status on the yeah. publicity or the website or the marketing yeah. in terms of how this important work that it yeah. does to engage audiences. Yeah. 
I think that's still very true. Mm. I don't think uh, it holds very high status at all. I think sometimes it doesn't hold any status whatsoever. And it is interesting, my experience is exactly like yours, that education departments are the ones pulling in the funding that uh, sustains other departments in whole line part. But despite that, it's not given the status it deserves. But there is a lot of talk about kind of participatory art, and we've just been through a cycle, an art world cycle, of socially engaged art. Oh, do you think that's finished now? I think it's coming, I think we're coming out of it, is that right? It kind of, it feels like it. It feels like it's almost over and no one's really decided even what it is. Yeah. In some, in some ways, people would talk about it as a synonym for gallery education. Yeah. I'm not a fan of the term socially engaged practice, so I kind of call what I do if I work in a way that might by others be defined as socially engaged practice. I call it participatory art. And if it's further involved, it'll become a collaboration. But I do remember working in gallery education, being very excited about research-based work, kind of entering the galleries and socially engaged practice suddenly being highlighted and given particular status because we all assumed that that would mean that we would be included (laughs) 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 and that at least we would be spoken to or asked our advice. But that wasn't the case at all. Mm. That was taking place in the curatorial department who would never look at the education department and the work that was taking place there as kind of a source for expertise or research or work or knowledge or potential projects. That they seem to be kind of very fixed walls in, in the different departments within the museums. Yeah, that's, that's always been my experience yeah. as well. Yeah, which always really amazed me. There's some incredible projects going on in gallery education yeah. departments. I, I think sometimes it might be terminology that, that curators are concerned with the art and with the things on the walls. And if people, even if there's no one in the gallery, the art is still they're doing this amazing yeah. magical thing. And gallery education is seen as a bit kind of dirtier and a bit less manageable. Um, and maybe it's, maybe it's something like that that they're not keen on. I've never really been able to fathom it, though. I think because it's not understood. I don't think, uh, I think there is generally an understanding that what happens in gallery education is either people being taken on a tour and told about the work, or that kids come into galleries and make nice drawings. And even from people who work in institutions where they're learning departments, that's their understanding of it. That is not serious or there's no quality in it as such. Whereas the, the gallery education I'm practicing and involved in is really about critical inquiry. And that happens sometimes through creative making or through discussion, but it happens by kind of facilitating a particular dialogue about the work or about the site or about the display or about curatorial decisions. So really, you can have very, very exciting discussions within gallery education that I don't think you can have in other departments because you can kind of contain antagonism and differences. You, are like, you can have very radical discussions that because it has such a low status, nobody notices what you're doing. 
But it's also such a great shame because really valuable work is taking place that it should really be recognised. Yeah. You know, people could you'd kind of once in a while just dip in and to see what's what's going on here. How important is this? People are questioning. You bring people in and you allow them to question. Maybe that's it then. Maybe institutions just don't really like to be questioned very much. For so long, the model of the gallery or museum has been a custodian of knowledge yeah. that is transmitted to this passive audience. Even, yeah. even the whole word, even the word audience, yeah. someone who just sits and listens, is very passive, is very yeah. kind of non-engaged. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's just that. Mm. I'm, I think it probably is. It's as simple <laughs> as that. So, you know, so it allows you to kind of, when, when you go in, you can basically do what you like. In some ways. You can get away with many things because you go under the radar or people really don't notice what it is or they think you're doing something else. But that's also a great shame that you have to go under the radar. You know, it's a great shame that those things and those expertises are not being taken on board within the institution because education is so crucial. So when I work with people... I want them to realise that they can ask questions, that they can very often formulate or find their own answers. So it doesn't mean that people can just walk in and say, I don't like her. You need to kind of argue for why is that. So it has to be rigorous. But I think it's crucial that uh, we all question things, that we all believe in our ability to kind of figure it out, Mm -hmm. not just, you know individually sitting at home, but through kind of like engaging with other people. So you might be right, nobody wants an educated population or a critical population. Absolutely. So that might be that that exists in the world, especially at the moment, I think. Yes. And perhaps it still exists within many institutions you shouldn't question. It's really not Yeah, they're they're the experts. Yeah. And uh, you should just, you know, this exhibition is happening because it's happening and because we know it should be happening. Yeah. You should just... Come along and look at it if you want to, but don't yeah. question why it's happening. Yeah, And it's a great shame. I would hate for people not to question me when I do things, and especially when I do things publicly, because you want somebody who's honest with you if you're exhibiting anything. I think it's generous, actually. I think it's generous to be critical. <laughs> I welcome criticism. And then I'll take it or leave it. It doesn't mean that I'm going to bend to it or I'm going to change my life or my belief or my practice because of it. But it means I have an opportunity for kind of considering what other people think about what I'm doing or saying. That's valuable. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's how people learn. Actually. It's how we learn. <clears throat> and it's how things change. Yeah. You know, so it should, it should be much more valued than it is. And I don't necessarily think it is within institutions, but some it is. You know, I've been doing it for a long time, and I think now I'm working with institutions and people, individuals, where things are valued differently. You know, I can't necessarily pick and choose entirely. But you are now at a stage where you can shape a project or discard a project, or, well, not discard, but perhaps not take on a project uh, if it's not what you want to do or if you, yeah. I think there's certain things. I mean, financially it's becoming harder. London is becoming more expensive. Rents are rising. Fees are not. So it's perhaps more difficult than it used to be, but it's still possible. To, I think it, to live it, in it's London still possible. And, yeah. I'm, I'm very clear on what I don't do. And is being in London an important 
thing for you? I mean, obviously, in terms of your employment, I imagine a lot of your employment yeah. is here. But it, is there something about London itself that's important to, to be in? It's important because there's a lot of things going on and people I care about are here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it does give me the opportunity for working and supporting my practice in the way that I do. And that would be difficult anywhere else. And I think in other cities around the world it would be difficult because the, the way I work and the possibilities that are here is, is very well developed here, not so much in other places. So in, so in that sense it is, but I, I kind of think I'm not quite done with London. I don't think it's where I'm going to stay, mm-hmm. but I've been saying that for 20 years. <laughs> I'm just, I've been saying I'm just visiting, passing through. You've said that the gallery education is important for your research and for your yeah. kind of ongoing practice. But at the same time, obviously, you earn money doing it. Yeah. And I'm wondering if one of the questions I've been asking people is, is the fact that you're being paid to do it, does that change your relationship with the activity that you're doing? Does that make sense as a question? Um, yes, I think so. And it does, because I'm working within particular frameworks when I'm working with others for others, which means that the time I have is predetermined and fixed. But I also think I don't work on projects where there is a predetermined outcome. That's one of the things I just really don't do because I don't believe it works like that. And I think especially, I mean, working with myself, I might have an idea about what I'm doing, but it ends up being something else. And I think when you work with others and if you want them to part of the process or you're facilitating whatever they're doing, then you can't predetermine what that is. So it does, because I have to, when I, when I work with other people, I have to be in a certain place at a certain time. Uh, I have to cover a certain theme. If I set up my own projects, that's not true. And I do that, I do set up my own projects. And then uh, a few times I've gotten funding for them and they became big projects. And that, of course, gives you an entirely different freedom. It sounds and like you're quite careful about what you get into I'm in very the careful place. about what I'm, what I'm picking and who I'm working for. And I think it's just because I know that I don't do certain things and because I'm not interested or because I don't do them very well. So I do increasingly kind of teach drawing workshops around architectural practice, which is something that's fairly new because it's so specific that it might be on exploration and process and drawing as a way of thinking, how we relate to particular sites, but it's also technical in part. So that's kind of different to much of the work that I've done before, which has been about kind of finding things out and interpretation and looking at stuff. But it's still open-ended, and it still kind of sits with my practice. And it's still so, about drawing, which was one of your first loves. I still draw, which was my first love, yeah, and I love yeah, drawing. Yeah. So it's nice. It's nice to be with a group of people who just draw because it's an enjoyable activity, and then you do have kind of, you know, conversation while that's taking place especially when it concerns architecture, kind of what's happening in London at the moment, you know. In, terms of, yeah. in terms of gentrification and regeneration. Exactly. And that, yeah. The prices of things. Mm-hmm. The ugliness of some of the new buildings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> how there will be room for everyone. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. how we're going to manage to stay in London, if that's what we want. Mm-hmm. You know, so all of those things, which are really interesting and valuable conversations as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they again feed into your practice, yeah. at least in terms of research. There might not be big themes that come out yeah. in the work that you're making necessarily. I actually think there's another thing about that work that's important to me, 
my work that I do in the studio might not be, or at least not seem to have, any kind of politics. I don't do kind of overtly political work. So there are certain things that I do where politics is implicit in the work, or it might have been the reason for starting of a project and a series of work. The work I do with others, I think, is political, because it is about education, it is about critical thinking, it is about asking questions. It is about not just accepting the status quo or people, as you were saying, who say this is how it is mm -hmm. and, you know, we can't change it. Kind of, hang on a second, I'm sure we can change it. There must be a way of changing things. And how does that manifest itself? Does that manifest itself in, in the, what we were talking about, maybe the changed experiences or behaviours of people, even if incidental, that, mm. that, that participate in the work? Does it, is it manifested in that? It is. I mean, I think when people kind of like, when, when you realise that people, and even young kids, are beginning to ask questions of things, that's great. Yeah. And essentially, I don't mind if they're asking questions about art. I'm much more interested in them realising that they can ask questions. And then they can go and ask that question anywhere in the world. And I think that's important. And you can have an opinion and somebody is taking it serious, and you spend an hour and a half where everybody is taking this deadly serious. You know. So in a way, the art world is incredibly important to help people realise just that thing in terms of their political voice and their activity in the world. I think art is particularly great for that, especially kind of modern and contemporary art, because it is so open to interpretation. It doesn't have a fixed range of symbols because vocabularies are personalised. So it sits really well as a site for kind of exchanging ideas, producing new knowledges, new understandings. And I think that's what I said earlier about it holds antagonism really well. Mm -hmm. It gives you a place where you can kind of argue and discuss and have differing opinions and no harm is being done and there's no fixed one answer. Mm -hmm. So it allows that and it holds it really well. So in a way it's almost like what politics should be, what big P politics should be. It's where proper political discourse can happen in terms of it. It's not just about policies or kind of single issue media oriented things. Yeah. It's about the, the politics of being a, being a person in the world. Yeah. That's big, isn't it? It is quite big. It's big. <laughs> no wonder people want to ostracize the art world and keep it in a box somewhere in the corner. I think so, because, you know, it could be. It could be. That's a good way of kind of pacifying it, isn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly. And Just separating it. And mm. I think we, we spoke about the art world as well, that you kind of call it the art world and you, you put a little fence around it, which means that it can very easily be dismissed. Yeah, you quantify it and put it over there yeah. and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. On a slightly more practical note then, you have the studio and you yeah. have uh, you have essentially a series of freelance jobs that you do as well. Yeah. Um, and then and you also have your practice. Yeah. I'd like to drill a little bit deeper into the way the ways and the amount of time that you spend, for example, setting up a project versus delivering a project. So uh, all the kind of administration and contacting people and funding, getting funding in place if that's what happens, versus kind of being out there and delivering a project, and in terms of your own practice rather yeah. than the, the education work. It's, it's such a difficult question to answer because it's all depending on the project. Yeah. And projects often 
comes out of work or kind of whatever research for want of a better word I'm not sure if that's the right word but whatever work I'm doing in the studio whatever issues I'm kind of concerned with uh, sometimes just open up brilliantly to ask other people more formally how they see things or how they would contribute to that so my funding application all the administration or getting it out in the world or organizing you know discussions or seminars all those things that go around usually come following a period of work and then I've done a few very large projects where the administration has been really intense because it involved a lot of people that I had to take care of I wanted to pay you know mm -hmm. all of those things I mean I have to like any other self-employed person I have to spend a lot of time answering emails being in contact. I occasionally apply for jobs or projects which take time. I do residencies and some of them are funded really nicely and some of them I need to bring in additional funding or apply for additional funding for. I can't, I'm not in a position where I can go or do anything that's not funded and I think it's increasingly things are not mm -hmm. paid for so they might give you a place to stay but they don't give you money to live on and that's just not possible so so it depends very much on exactly what is going on um, and I think even kind of like considering my work kind of in education or the projects I do with other people in universities or galleries that are funded and paid for you still need to set those up. You have endless email communication about details of them. You need to plan. Sometimes people want to see your plan or a version of it. And if it's a public project, they need text to go on the website. And so, so there's a lot of things actually that go into maybe doing, you know, five days work, at least take five days to deal with. Mm -hmm. And the fee is often just for the bit of the five you days only work. Get and pay yes. A few institutions uh, are very good at kind of acknowledging that there are planning time and research time and meeting time, but many are not. Many so you're always not. kind of cross-subsidizing that. I suppose often from your job you're cross-subsidizing yeah, that. Yeah, I think so. It's always a balance, isn't it? Somebody was saying to me the other day that you can always get more money, but you can never have, you can never get more time. <laughs> <laughs> and I was kind of thinking about this is that's how it is because I have a husband who works so that means there's two of us bringing in money I live very cheaply in many ways it means that the life that we have affords me to have a studio and it affords me to once in a while say that I'm now going to spend time in the studio doing this so it's, it's quite a balancing act really, it is a balancing act continuously mm -hmm. But the, the rewards of it are still enough to keep you, keep you doing it. It is. I never, when I decided, not that I wanted to be an artist, but I decided I now am an artist. I think it's, it's more kind of genuine for me to say it like that. Is I, I had open eyes. I knew what I was getting myself in for. I knew that it would be uncertain, uh, financially insecure. Also at the time when I started, there wasn't the idea of the super art star mm -hmm. making millions and millions. So I never was under the illusion that I would go into this and have a career where I would make lots and lots of money. 
And is that something... I mean, obviously now there's a lot of conversation around fees for artists, paying yeah. artists and that kind of stuff. Is that becoming like it might be something on the horizon that it might solidify into a financial base for an artist's career? I'm not sure if it will. Well, perhaps it will for some. I mean, I, I, I know from my own practice that I don't, I don't pay to submit to things. That's a very clear decision I have made. Uh, I don't, In terms of applications? Yeah, fees, I don't it? necessarily submit for many things, but if there's a submission fee attached to that, I won't apply for it. Why is that? I'm, because um, I'm not certain why I or artists should subsidise those residencies. It's great if you get it, because that means that a hundred of the artists have paid for your residency. But very often those are organised by organisations where people in those organisations are paid. I mean, I kind of consider it to be part of their job. I think mm -hmm. that organisations should take responsibility for paying artists because they get something out of having you in residence. You know, very often you have to do public engagements or talks or exhibitions as part of that, which is their programme, which gets people through their doors. So at the moment it seems that the onus is an artist to kind of support what's happening in public. And essentially that means that we carry the cost for exhibitions and public displays. And seemingly we carry the cost uh, entirely. So you make the work, you pay for that, you pay for your studio. Then you also have to pay for the opportunity to exhibit and then you have to pay for transporting your works and getting them back. Mm -hmm. Insuring it sometimes Insuring as well. it sometimes. It has a direct effect, and I think on me and I know on other people, that because we are no longer paid exhibition fees and sometimes have to transport our own work, that means that I can't exhibit as much as I want to or as much as other people want me to. Mm -hmm. You know, if you make a film or if you make little works, maybe that's fine. You can put them in an envelope and send them off. That's good. But if you make bigger works, uh, it becomes a real cost. Mm -hmm. I think it's definitely a reason why uh, particularly art is shown in particular galleries, including public-funded institutions, because there's less risk. You don't bring artists in who might be risky or doing things that um, is not predictable, perhaps. In terms of their work, in terms of their In terms output. of the work, because if you work with galleries and if it's an exhibition where work is sold and they might get a commission for selling your work, then it's in their interest to get artists in where you know the work will sell. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that public galleries are also getting into that as well. I mean, I know galleries in London that have very close ties with commercial galleries yeah. and dealers and they predominantly show work by artists represented yeah. by those galleries and dealers with the expectation that some of it, or quite a lot of it, will sell. And, yeah. Uh, is, is, is an important income stream. So thinking a little more broadly about the art world and your career path through it, what are the kind of main stumbling blocks or difficulties or barriers that, that you come up against or anticipate that might damage or make your career more difficult to, to carry on? Is money one of those things? Money is one of the things, um, as we spoke about before, London is expensive and if uh, studio rent and home rent and bills continue to go up and my fees not going up, mm -hmm. then that's going to be an issue. 
So London so is kind of a barrier, London the structure barrier. of London, yeah. I think London is a barrier to that. Besides that, I'm not entirely sure what is, because I could kind of say that gallery practices and the fact that you have to pay to exhibit increasingly is a barrier to getting out, and if you get out, you get automatically more opportunities because people realize you exist. But I think, I mean, it, it, it kind of comes down to money in, in many ways and how I can afford to maintain my practice. Mm. I think for me that's it because I'm not, I'm not kind of pursuing a high-profile career as such. I think it's lovely to exhibit and I'm excited by it and that, you know, kind of when, when you show work or when you're giving opportunities to do a commission or... Uh, go on a residency is great because it puts you in contact with other people and different kind of conversations. So it is something that I treasure and I'm very pleased to do. But the aim of my practice or my reason for being an artist is not to be in the biennials or big museum shows. I've never seen that as kind of a goal in itself. So in a way, it doesn't... doesn't. It's a really interesting answer. Because it it sort of blows apart this idea that success for an artist means creating bigger and bigger projects at bigger and bigger platforms and uh, more important, in quote marks, institutions and galleries that you work with. And it sounds like that's not really what drives you and your practice. It doesn't. I sometimes think in the same way I think about selling my work, that maybe it should you know, maybe I should be more ambitious in those terms. And the reason why I should it is not for the status or the kudos or even the money, but maybe because it gives me opportunities for doing projects that I really want to do. There's no doubt in my mind that there's a relationship between what your CV looks like and what people will invite you to do. But it's never been a goal. I'm not ambitious in that sense. I'm ambitious about the work. I'm very ambitious about my work with people. But I'm not, I, I don't see a ladder in front of me. And I don't think, oh, I should go to that gallery because that might lead to that gallery and I really want to show there. As much as I sometimes think it might be a clever thing to do, it just doesn't seem to be part of who I am or the way I operate. And amongst the artists, the other artists that you know in your network, is that quite a prevalent thing through a majority of them? I think it is. And I know it's not amongst all artists, but it's probably just a reflection about kind of who I stay in contact with, who my friends are. Mm-hmm. And do you think those... This is really fascinating, because uh, mm. I've, I've often thought the same thing myself, actually, yeah. in terms of my own practice as an artist and in terms of a lot of the, the more interesting art that yeah. I see tends not to be by those people who are very career-focused yeah. and have these markers of success along the way. I wonder... Because obviously I work in a in, in higher education institution and I yeah. wonder if some of that is a function of higher education that values a particular kind of artistic practice which is studio-based, object-focused, uh, exhibitions-focused, potentially also increasingly now sales-focused yeah. and is, is about trying to create or carve out a particular kind of career ladder that newly graduating artists are shown as this is the, this is the way to be an artist. I guess I'm just wondering mm. about the link with higher education and, and the way that the, a career as an artist is being presented by higher education. But, I mean, you have ambition at all ages, don't you? 
and people who have always been very ambitious. But I do think there is. And, and one of the things I worry about uh, in terms of higher education is precisely that the people who teach in higher education need to either do academic research that has a value for the institution, within the institution, which means that they might uh, shift their practice or they might need to spend a considerable amount of time on academic research and writing in a particular way. Or they have to be artists of a particular status. And of course, if you come into a university and you see that's the way to go, then that's what you follow. I mean, we all followed the insane professors or, you know, the kind of slightly odd people who would just do their work because they felt like it, would do odd things, take risk, not care. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably increasingly impossible within higher education to not care. Mm. You, you have yeah. to care at every level about what other people think. And they are going to review you and verify you and assess you. Mm. So it's the oddness, for want of a better word, or the really interesting people are kind of disappearing. The ones who might present another way of being an artist or other possibilities for being an artist. That's not about progressing through the system, either through academia or through the art world. So a final quick question. Do you think you'll always be an artist? What else would I be? <laughs> what else should I do? <laughs> yeah. would, you, would you consider not being an artist anymore? No. I think I'm in it for the long game. <laughs> I think it's also a mindset. I think it's a particular way of thinking that is useful in many situations. You know, there's probably a lot of transferable skills, but I can't imagine that I'll suddenly change. So that's all the time we have for this programme and I'd like to thank Mayanna for her time and insights into her career. Uh, the Work of Art is brought to you by ArtQuest, a programme of University of the Arts London and Arts Council England, providing everything an artist needs to know. If you've enjoyed this programme, please visit our website at artquest.org.uk to listen to the rest of the series.